online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. I'll be with you between 12 and 1. Plenty to get through in that time, including a complex turn of events for the live export vessel burst at Fremantle. We'll also hear from a young farmer thrown in the deep end to manage a large property in the northern Midlands, embracing the challenge of trying something new. Gone pretty hard early on, so put up a lot of fences and, and a bit more infrastructure. We're pretty happy just to you know keep going as is. Um, yeah, really focus on good rotations and, and growing good crops. Yeah, I tend to like the chaos of it all and the, the make it happen sort of attitude. So yeah, it's been good. Hugh Bradley from Longford uh, a little later on and also insights into selecting fruit pickers from Timor-Leste to work in Tasmania. So we've recognised that our Timorese workers are a little bit on the shorter side, the smaller side, um, but they have very good speed. We're actually looking uh, for roles where they could be successful in that. That story in about half an hour and we'll also hear why berry growers have banded together in its first collaborative marketing campaign as well. Love to hear from you too. 0438 is the number to text in. Let's uh, start with renewables uh, because there have been two consecutive days of renewable energy protests on Parliament lawns at Canberra and those for and those against. Now, yesterday, Farmers for Climate Action rallied in support of renewable energy developments, claiming it was good income for farmers and regional communities, as well as good for the environment. And today, another group has gathered claiming they have been directly and adversely affected by what they have labelled the Australian government's reckless rollout of renewables. Among the speakers at that rally... uh, Senator Jacinta Namajimpa-Price and MP Bob Catter, as well as other representatives from South Australia, New South Wales and Queensland. And of course, in Tasmania, we're facing renewables controversy of our own. Just last night, farmers who would be affected by the Northwest Transmission Development met in Sheffield to voice their concerns. One of the key topics on that agenda how they should be compensated by TAS Networks. I spoke to TAS Farmers President Ian Saw earlier. Look, the meeting was held last night. Um, the TAS Farmers members and others who were on that uh, Marinus Link line from Palmerston through to Burnie so that we could discuss with them a process um, and a compensation package. And what came out of that meeting last night, there would have been at least 60 people there um, It's fair to say that a lot of those farmers uh, that were there were angry. There was some confusion. Um, They tasked TAS farmers to go back to both the Minister and to uh, TAS Networks with a series of questions. That's the first part. The second part, they're wanting us to come back. Uh, We've had some work, um, uh, work, some economic work done on the cost of compensation on the end end product, which is the retail end of the electricity price. So they then want us to come back with what they think is a compensation model under the Strategic Benefits Programme. How many farmers are affected by this transmission line? Oh, I think upwards of 200 over the whole line and some of the, you know, small farms, larger farms, etc. So it's, you know, it's, it's going a long way all the way from Palmerston through to Burnie um, and all of those farms are different. However, TAS Farmers' view, and we've made it abundantly clear many, many times, is that this land is some of the best land in the world, there's no doubt about it. It's highly productive, it's highly innovative, there's above ground and underground infrastructure um, and TAS farmers, farmers are not going to be subsidising the cost of these projects for the benefit of other people. There needs to be an equitable share of the spoils going through and uh, the other thing we have to keep in mind is that there's basically two lots of compensation. There's compensation under the Act, which is, you know, devaluation of land, etc. And now we've got the um, strategic benefits payment. And you've heard in Victoria, it's, I think, you know, $200,000 a kilometre plus CPI for 20 years. Uh, Queensland's more. Um, we've made it very clear that uh, for us, the starting point will be north of what Queensland are doing. Um, 
not only do we think it's fair and reasonable that that is um, indexed to inflation, but it's also for the life of the transmission tariff. So it's not for 20 years, it should be for 60 years. Um, we think that that's fair and reasonable because the model that we've built that on, uh, the wind turbines that are on farms scattered around Australia and indeed Tasmania, um, and farmers get a rent payment or a strategic benefit payment for that for the life of that wind turbine. Now, those wind turbines normally have a life of about 25 years and then they're completely refurbished and the negotiation starts again. So whether it's a transmission line or whether it's, you know, a, a turbine, it doesn't matter. Does TAS Networks think that position's reasonable? Well, we haven't gone down that path all the way and I, I would assume that they probably don't think it's reasonable. However, look, we've got economic data now and we've got enough data from around Australia and around the world that could reasonably and fairly demonstrate that uh, farmers and landowners need to be able to share in that in an equitable way and we think that the models that we'll be putting forward to the farmers, so that's what we've been tasked with, come back with a model, come back to the farmers and then they'll discuss it and we'll do that You know, within the month. We don't want to drag our feet on this um, but I'm suggesting that that's probably where we'll be starting at there. Is there much a wiggle room to change the direction or where the transmission lines are placed if you've got more productive land and less productive land? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, look, that's, that's one of the things. And, you know, I've, I've got to say that, you know, the discussions of Sean McGoldrick have been more than reasonable. So he, he has been open. So that's been good. And that's something that we've put forward to uh, TAS Networks that, look, you know, we don't want to see these transmission lines going over pivots or dairy sheds or whatever. Can they be moved? Well, they can be moved hundreds of metres, but not kilometres. So I think... Yep, is there wriggle room? Absolutely, there has to be. I mean, this land is some of the most productive in the world, and you know, forty years ago it was a you know it was cows, pole were sheep, and oats. Well, it's completely different in forty years. It's transformed. You know, what's going to happen in another forty years? It, 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 you just can't think about it. So, yep. So that's why the far, that's why it needs to be indexed, and uh, that's why um, we need to make sure that we get the model right, so it's going to last for the life of that line. Now, last year you commissioned some research to try and uh, look at compulsory acquisitions and if companies and businesses, utilities agencies could do better at communicating their position with agriculture and people that work in farming. Has anything changed since that report was released? It's a really, really slow drip. Um, I think at the higher levels of these organisations, um, at board level and really senior management, they understand that these farms are businesses. Um, they're making a living. They're contributing to society in a variety of ways. And to come to them and threaten them with compulsory acquisition is just a nonsense. So TAS farmers have said that you take it off the table. It's just not there. Now, you know, TAS farmers have also said that, you know, you can use that as a tool of last resort, but, you know, we're not going to support you until you overturn every single stone and make every single effort. So as far as we're concerned, we, we see no reason for it to be used. However, last night, I mean, seriously disappointed there were two or three farmers that came to me and TAS Networks had been to them and because they pushed back they said but you do have to realise we've got compulsory acquisition so you know it still goes on. Now, I know at the senior management, they're going to be horrified to hear that and we'll be writing a letter of complaint today about that. But it's just not fair. And, of course, what we're seeing at the moment is we're seeing around Australia and, and, and all over the countryside and the mood of the, of the farmers last night. And the reason why that's there is that there has been a lack of consultation. There's been a lack of community engagement. There's been a lack of transparency. There's been, you know, the, some of these companies, whether it doesn't matter what they are, can be roads, rail, power, water, it doesn't matter. They'll pick off the vulnerable and then be left with the last few. So it's just not, it's just not fair. And we've got these companies coming over over um, farmers' land. Sometimes, you know, they've been invited. Sometimes they aren't. Um, we, in the next few weeks, with the Victorian Farmers Federation, will be um, launching a farm access code. This is a booklet that will outline all the legal, you know, the legal responsibilities of not only the farmer but those people that want to come on the land and what they should be doing. Sadly, what it boils down to is just good manners, <laughs> and that's just not being demonstrated to the farmers at all.
Ian Saw, President of Taz Farmers, chatting about the latest developments in the Northwest transmission line. On the text, uh, Vineyard PJ says, Hi guys, the power line issue is really easy to solve. Put them underground. It even works out to be cheaper. I wonder what uh, if you've been affected by this particular project, uh, you might have an opinion on how things have been handled in the lead up, 0438 922 Send your opinions in. Love to read them out. Well, let's head over to Western Australia now, where thousands of Australian sheep and cattle aboard the MV Bahija will remain on board after the federal regulator refused an application from the exporter last night. Now, the application plan was to re-export livestock on board the vessel to Israel via the Cape of Good Hope. The animals have been on board for more than a month now after it was ordered to turn back from its journey to the Middle East and is currently berthed in Fremantle. Jeff Pearson is the Livestock President with WA Farmers and he's been closely involved with this ship. He told Lucinda Jose the application has been refused due to complications in Israel. Basically, we're in a situation where the department have taken some time to, to come up with a decision. But what the uh, the biggest hurdle is now is that the apparently the Isra- an Israeli activist uh, organisation has put an injunction um, into the uh, Israeli government to uh, um, not allow um, the animals or not allow the government to uh, list a, a, an importing permit to uh, import those uh, cattle into Israel. That's extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. On the Country Hour yesterday, you sounded really confident that the permit would be approved. Is this a shock to you? It is, it is. I mean, we, we did everything we, we can. We pulled out all stops to reduce the stocking density of the, of the, uh, the livestock vessel uh, at the department's request in anticipation that we would be able to uh, continue on with the voyage with the existing animals on the ship. Uh, and now we're in a situation where I think uh, the as as early as Sunday, uh, this activism group has gone to the courts uh, um, to put an injunction into um, not allowing the uh, the importation of these livestock into Israel. So it's it's your understanding that that that's the the main problem is a is a group in in Israel. Is there any uh, objection from within Australia? Well, um, look, uh, it's, it's all just sort of happened just just quickly as from yesterday. But you know, I'm not sure whether we are in a position to be able to go back to the Israeli government, um, you know, department to department, government to government, to be able to overturn anything. But I, I understand how the courts work. Um, that basically, if there is any impending uh, issues within the courts, which there is at the moment, um, they may not be able to be uh, turned around quickly. What can you tell us about that injunction, Jeff? Well, basically, uh, an animal activism group has, uh, has, has listed an injunction um, to uh, stop the uh, importing um, permit being issued for uh, cattle into Israel. Uh, I believe that it's, um, it's been submitted to the courts on as early as uh, Sunday, just gone, um, and I also believe that there's a, there's a, a hearing in a couple of days' time um, to determine the outcome of whether this injunction needs to be uh, submitted or, or overruled. What authority does the injunction have? Uh, well, look, that's yet to be determined through the legal process of, of Israel. I'm not 100% sure of that, but, but basically I think while uh, these this injunction is in place, it, it doesn't allow uh, the Israeli government to issue a permit uh, to import uh, these livestock into um, into the country, and therefore our government uh, can't uh, in, in, um, submit a export uh, permit to while well, this is in place. So while the legal process is in place, things have to be in a holding pattern. That's correct. What do you know about this group in Israel? Uh, look, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure um, where they how they exist or where they exist. I've heard of them uh, in the past, and they're, they're quite a strong organisation. Uh, I, I would almost um, guarantee there's, there's connections to the Australian uh, activism uh, group, or one of them. Um, so I, I can't pinpoint any of the any of the names or, or uh, of the organisations at all. So, but yeah, just just know that they exist and they're quite strong. Do you know if anything like this has happened before? 
no, I think there was something back in the early days um, with one of the Q80 boats, um, but I believe from just doing a bit of research on it last night that it was submitted but overturned very quickly. Yeah. How long does an injunction last for? Uh, well, going on the historical uh, research that I did last night in regards to the other one, it only lasted two or three days by the time they, they'd listed it in the courts uh, and then had a hearing and it got overturned within three or four days. But in this situation, look, it, it could be the same, but, uh, you know, these these things can go on for a very long time uh, in court. So uh, it's inde- indefinitely. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a situation that the department's been put in that we, we can't wait. Uh, we have to make a decision and, um, and this, this is a decision that's been made. Yes, and, and what happens now? To, uh, obviously now we will have to on- offload the livestock. Um, yeah, we, we've already offloaded a percentage of, um, of, of cattle off the, off the ship but no sheep. Um, so <clears throat> we're in a situation now where we've, we've got to find a home for um, the sheep, uh, preferably a quarantine uh, facility that, uh, that, that, they, that they came from, but understanding that there's... Other sheep in those quarantine facilities, as we speak, um, that need to be shifted out before we can before we can discharge the livestock, the sheep livestock from the the ship uh, as soon as as soon as we we can. But um, the future of of the sheep will be um, either re-export or process. Um, I believe that we can we can process them here. Discussions going on with processors at the moment to um, to be able to, to to process those sheep. But the cattle, I'd say, will uh, wait, buy some time uh, back at the registered premises and um, and look at re-exporting into Israel when things sort themselves out. Livestock President with WA Farmers, Jeff Pearson, speaking with Lucinda Jose. Watch this space. There is certainly a lot more to come on this developing story. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 22 past 12, great to have your company this Tuesday lunch hour. Like with any business, expanding the family farming operation can have its ups and downs, especially if it was never on the cards. 24-year-old Hugh Bradley has taken on the management of his uncle's property in the Northern Midlands, after he was tragically killed in a climbing accident more than two years ago. I hitched a ride during wheat harvest at the farm at Nile to find out what the transition's been like. You there, Phil? Yep. Looks pretty good through here. What's it yielding? Yeah, good stuff. There's some wheat coming on, huh? Yeah, big time, yep. Keeping you honest in the chase a bit today anyway. So I finished Marcus in 2022. There was a decision made probably in, in mid-2021 after the passing of Michael to sort of, um, yeah, you know, come home and the t- time was right. You know, it was sort of an expansion under sad circumstances and and the sort of need was there to, to, to come home and get into it. So that decision was made and, yeah, I guess... The balls were already rolling by the time I got home, so we've sort of made a few changes here at Winburn and Wattymore, sort of introduced a lot of livestock back into the system. Yeah, in terms of my transition in, it's, it's been pretty pretty good. I've, I've sort of maintained pretty good touch with uh, what's going on at home while I've been away and then also getting good experience in, in Canada and then uh, on a grain property and potato property there. And then, yeah, Marcus has been a great education for you know managing a mixed farm and managing a mixed farming business i think they do an excellent job of preparing us to be thrown into that type of management sort of role now michael chilvers was your uncle one of the state's largest grain growers and most respected growers too yeah that's right yeah you know mac did a did a great job here and um oh uh, yeah we you know hope to continue on his, his legacy and growing good grain crops is, is yeah he'd be looking down proud at this I bet. Coming home, what did you have to do to continue the cropping country that that was already in front of you? There's a lot of work Michael had put into this property with varieties and uh, with rotations and that sort of thing. Yeah, so I think the property had been um, cropped pretty heavily, so a lot of dry land cereals, canolas, and um, there was a bit of ryegrass resistance getting about, so 
us looking at the property, probably you know, change of management. We've, we've reintroduced a lot more livestock and, and longer breaks between the cereal crops to try and manage that ryegrass resistance. So, uh, including more chicory and clovers in the system, and then um, yeah, longer grazing phases, which you know we hope can control our ryegrass resistance. And how does it work in conjunction with the livestock? Yeah, so we try and work on like a sort of six to seven year rotation with sort of at least a three year um, clover and chicory rotation. So that being the, the broadleaf break crop, so that, that you know is both beneficial for the soils and then and then the, the weed management. Uh, yeah, and then I guess targeting our cash crops being you know, peas, poppies, and grass seed. The combination of those in, in the mix with the with the long grazing phase uh, we're finding is, is the best. You're harvesting wheat currently. When did this crop of a crock go in the ground? So it was planted about the 1st of May. This was just after a um, potato crop. So we, yeah, we partnered with Simplot Farming and Angus Lyon to um, grow potatoes. So we, so we harvested um, 68 tonne out of this paddock to the hectare. And uh, yeah, we're finding that the wheat following following potatoes on, on quality soils, yeah, we're, we're yielding pretty well. So on the yield monitors, this is flashing up over 14 tonnes, uh, but I think across the field it'll be more like 12, 12 and a half, something like that. So, you know, You've got to be happy with that. Yeah, totally, yeah, fantastic. I think that's a lot of that, you know, leftover nutrient from the potatoes they certainly loaded on. Plenty of N and K and so, yeah, I think... Um, is that going to be a repeat exercise then? Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah. We, we tend to follow follow potatoes with wheat to varying degrees of success. On the stronger, heavier soils, it's, um, yeah, it can be a bit, bit tricky, you know, particularly with waterlogging and whatnot. But on these sort of sandier soils through here, through the Nile, it seems to be going pretty well. What have you got left to get off? We've got um, a little paddock here of uh, 18 hectares of... Uh, clover seed which will be elf in the next week or so and then we've got 70 hectares of chicory seed and then another 20 of carrot seed yeah we're really enjoying the ryegrass it means we can run a lot of our livestock so most of our ewe flock runs on on the grass seeds um, right up until weaning and then then lock up so it means we're sort of in a way running our our ewes for free and then post that we're able to you know bale the straw and then water up the, the, the remaining grass and, yeah, go again. And then we can then roll that into a spring crop, being peas or poppies, or peas or potatoes, really, yeah. The weather hasn't been kind for harvesting grain this season. Has it been a bit frustrating? Yeah, I think everyone will tell you that. It's, um, it's been, you know, high humidity and just it's not enough heat, really. Um, even when you think you're going to get going, it's sort of stayed at, like, 60% humidity till midday, so... Yeah, it's been a bit frustrating, but I think you get years like this. Yeah, I think a lot of that rain on the mainland, it, we might not be getting the moisture, but we're certainly getting it in the air, um, which is, yeah, slowing us up. In terms of further investment in this property, do you have any goals or are you happy just ticking along with the current program? Yeah, well, we've gone pretty hard um, early on, so put up a lot of fences and, and a bit more infrastructure. Yeah, we're sort of reaching a point pretty shortly where... We're pretty happy just to, you know, keep going as is. Um, yeah, really focus on good rotations and, and growing good crops. Yeah, farming. So, yeah, I tend to like the chaos of it all and, the, you know, the make it happen sort of attitude. So, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, always keen on a good project. So. But thrown in the deep end pretty early on than probably what you expected. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been good. I, I would get itchy otherwise, I think. Um, yeah, I always want to have a bit of responsibility I suppose. It's a bit of a challenging farm with the with the rivers so we've got the Nile River running between the two sort of blocks and then the South Esk running the other way so there's sort of nearly 400 hectares that goes underwater so that that can be a challenge particularly with with livestock so you know there's parts of the farm we can't really stock over the winter at all so that sort of does you know cause some logistical challenges you've got to have areas that you can pull stock up onto but yeah it's a beauty of it in summer you can then your farm expands so it works okay. Hugh Bradley now managing the running of Winburn, a 1,200-hectare property at Nile in the northern Midlands. Uh, later in the program, we'll head to Morbana in the northwest and chat to a dairy farmer there who has changed his approach to farming, even venturing down the path of event planning. And have you ever used a water diviner or the services of one? It's a bit kooky to some but others say it works to find water on the property. An interesting chat on that in about 20 minutes from now. And news and headlines not too far away. 
Are you a dream builder or a thrill seeker? You need to be born without fear. A daring traveller or a joy giver? It's just intoxicating, this place. You'll find all your kindred spirits together on ABC iView. This is amazing! With a bounty of programmes like Joanna Lomley's Spice Trail Adventure, Grand Designs Transformations, Muster Dogs and so much more. Come on, puppies! It's all there for you. Always free, always inspiring on ABC iView. Uh, let's find out what's happening with the weather across the state today. Uh, Luke Johnston is on deck. Any rain to speak of, Luke? Oh, there was a little bit in the 24 hours to 9am in the northeast, particularly the upper part of the east coast. Pine Garner had 6 millimetres, Friendly Beaches had 5 and Lewis Hill had 10 Mount St John had 14 millimetres, but anywhere away from that little pocket about the Upper East Coast, there was just a few light showers into the west and it remained uh, dry elsewhere. The last three and a half hours since 9am, there's been some very light showers reported at uh, St Patrick's Head up in the, the northeast uh, uh, near Bishuno-ish and a few light showers into the west. For the remainder of today, kind of more of the same. Dry about the northwest, north, um, the Midlands and you know, the southeast with just a few light showers coming into the west and, and the northeast for the remainder of today. And what about the rest of the week? Well, looking pretty dry for the most part. There's going to be a few light showers tomorrow morning about the west of the state, but remaining fine elsewhere. On Thursday, we might have some light showers develop about the northeast and the lightest of light showers, but otherwise fine conditions. Friday, a cold front will come over the state. We'll bring some showers to the west, uh, but then come up over the south and parts of the east coast during the day, but not expecting it to be more than a sprinkle, really. So essentially dry but not the driest of dry, if that makes sense. <laughs> and then over the weekend, it looks uh, more of the same. So mostly fine conditions, but we might have some light showers popping up here and there, but nothing that's really going to be significant. Okay, so if you're taking the boat out, conditions good today? Goodish, yeah. Goodish. Good, better in the north. Uh, west of the southwesterly winds, 10 to 20 knots, although a bit more southeasterly in the northeast. Gradually during the remainder of today, winds are shifting west to northwesterly and eventually increasing to 30 knots in the far south. Tomorrow, winds will be uh, westerly in the range of 10 to 20 knots in most areas, reaching 30 knots in the far south. Some uh, reasonable afternoon sea breezes expected tomorrow right by the coast as well. West and south has a west to southwesterly swell, one and a half, two and a half metres, increasing to two to three metres tomorrow. Through Bass Strait, a consistent westerly to around one metre. The east coast has got a southerly to around one metre and a northeasterly to around one metre as well. Significant wave height of uh, 1.9 metres off the west coast at the moment. And what have we got in the way of warnings? Well, just warnings at the moment. Strong wind warning for the southeast and southwestern coastal waters, but uh, nothing, nothing anywhere else. Looks like a pretty benign summery week. Hopefully, good for harvesting, Larissa. Great, good to hear. You're doing your job. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks so much, Luke. Thanks. Luke Johnston there at the Weather Bureau. You're with Larissa Smith. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. We were talking earlier on in the program about uh, transmission lines, ongoing discussions between landholders and proponents of a new project in the northwest, how those transmission lines are affecting them and the compensation models that they would prefer. Uh, David says, uh, regarding transmission line problems, same applies to wind turbines. There is a lack of proper consultation, transparency, and it's now compounded by transmission and wind farms not being uh, subject to appeals under the recently announced fast planning process. A uh, different uh, question here from Brian. Uh, he says, uh, the Ooze River, can you find out why the river has dropped from an average height at 0.56 metres to 0.1 in a few days, as low as 0.13 yesterday? I understand hydro to have a responsibility to environmental welfare, as Brian says, as the generation of power, but this is ridiculous. Uh, he says it's destroying the whole ecosystem. And uh, uh, he says he's amazed that, uh, that things aren't being addressed here, looking at some of the species there that might be impacted by the, the sudden drop in, in water. So thank you for that text, Brian. We'll, uh, we'll certainly look into it. Start your day with the voice of your community. Join your local ABC team and keep up to date on the latest news, weather, sports and events in your area. 
And we want to hear from you. Share your views, connect with your neighbours and speak to the community. Call, text or email us your opinions, questions and personal stories. Don't miss out on the best way to start your day. ABC Breakfast, every weekday morning from 6 and live on the ABC Listen app. Well, berry growers have united in an industry-first national marketing campaign to increase the consumption of all four berries. The Berry Basket collaboration will be delivered by Hort Innovation and led by the industry's peak body, Berries Australia. Its executive director says that historically, blueberries, blackberries, strawberries and raspberries have run their own marketing campaigns. Rachel McKenzie spoke to Kim Honan about how encouraging Aussie shoppers to put more berries in their baskets will benefit growers. This approach has been um, really positive overseas and there's a lot of evidence to say that a consumer who buys one berry is is likely to buy another berry. We're also really wanting to emphasise to the Australian consumer that, you know, at every time of year there is a great value, great tasting berry for you to try. So consumers, are you suggesting, will go out and buy all, you know, punnets of all the berries, all those different four berries at a time? Certainly um, there are a particular cohort of consumers who buy across the category, but often, as I said, they they have their um, moments of glory at different times of year. So um, we just want people to be buying berries every single time they go to the supermarket, pop a punnet in your trolley. And certainly there'd be different seasons for different berries, are there? Yes, absolutely. And we're lucky in Australia because we have such geographic diversity. We are able to grow berries 12 months of the year. And so, you know, there are a few times of the year where there might be a few little gaps. But, for example, at the moment, um, the strawberries in the shops are from Tasmania and Victoria. Moving into winter, they'll be um, predominantly from Queensland. Blueberry production also um, changes with the peak coming through from um, the northern New South Wales region in that October period. But we've also got production in Western Australia, Tasmania, Victoria. And raspberries and blackberries um Depending on the varieties, they can come through at different times of the year as well. So essentially what we're saying to consumers is when when all four berries are good value, go for all four berries. Otherwise, you know, just make sure you pop a punnet in your trolley. Yeah, so when will the campaign start and what will it entail? So the campaign is starting right now and it's got a couple of facets to it. It has quite a strong social media and influencer component Um, They're going to highlight the standout features of berries, including health benefits, so antioxidant richness and nutritional density, and a 30-second commercial to showcase the taste appeal on um, on on-demand television. So we're going to have Out of Home, which is the the banners that you see outside supermarkets. We're also going to have some advertising on the Coles and Woolworths online platforms, recognising that a lot of shoppers now buy their produce online. So what are you hoping to achieve with this campaign? Is it about increasing production? Is about is it about increasing value for, for those industries? Well, it's about increasing consumption, which therefore then increases value. So it's ensuring that all year round berry growers are being paid above the cost of production because sometimes it does dip below and that um, Australian consumers really appreciate these little nutritional powerhouses that they can eat every day. And have you welcomed the inquiry by the ACCC into supermarket pricing? Yes, it's absolutely important to have a look at the supply chain and make sure that every player in the supply chain is being treated fairly. And do you believe that uh, berry growers are with their relationships with the major supermarkets? I think it's important that we let the inquiry run so that we can understand what's actually happening because there's so many moving parts. I would hesitate to make a claim without getting all of the evidence, hence the need for an inquiry. Rachel McKenzie, Executive Director of Berries Australia, speaking there to Kim Honan. Well, still on fruit, as workforce shortages continue to plague the country's horticulture sector, farmers are looking further afield to fill their workforce including Timor-Leste. Around 7,500 people from the island country were employed on Australian farms last year, and about 1,000 of those are based in Tasmania. So what's involved in finding the right workers to pick fruit? I asked Melissa Denning to explain. She's from the Australian Pacific Labor Alliance. 
So we've recognised that our Timorese workers are a little bit on the shorter side, the smaller side, um, but they have very good speed. So we're actually looking uh, for roles where they could be successful in that. So in order to do that, we had to narrow down from the 15,000 in the work ready pool basically the fastest for us. So we designed tests that actually showed us the speed of the workers, a hand-eye coordination test, so we were able to filter down to taking the 500 that we needed, well, originally the 20 that we needed, as opposed to uh, you know, the 15,000 that are currently in the work-ready pool. One of the very first tests that I did, I called ping-pong test. I spray-painted 24 red ping-pong balls and 60 green ping-pong balls, and I mixed them together in a box. And they had to pull out the red ping-pong balls, resembling strawberries, and put them in an egg carton. And we had to see how fast they could do it, but also we were testing their colour blindness, because obviously they needed to recognise the difference between the red and the green. And that way we were able to not so much eliminate people, but in order to get the best workers who would be successful and earn the most money when they came to Australia. Is height a problem or a challenge? Height can be for us. Our tabletops generally sit at around around 150 centimetres, so we need people that are slightly taller than that. So we generally try and recruit people that are about 155 centimetres tall. An average Timorese lady is, is around 142 centimetres. Because we have... Uh, acknowledge that our Timorese workers are, are wonderful for us, we've actually decided to lower some of our tables so that they can actually be more productive and it can actually then obviously do the work faster. For our raspberries and our, ca- our canes, they actually sit at around 2 metres, 2 metres 20. So part of the testing I do is actually the height test to make sure that they can reach that high. But in other instances, we've also started to lower some of our canes so that our Timorese can actually do really well at picking our raspberries as well. Some other industries around the country that have also adjusted the way their um, orchards are set up uh, to cater for the workforce. That's right. I've also heard of stories of the mango farms pruning their trees so that the fruit actually grows lower. Things along the lines of with the how they operate the conveyor belts with the watermelons and the pumpkins, um, you know, different sizing so that people find it easier. Um, we find our Timorese do really well when they have to squat. So things like broccolini and cauliflower and, and broccoli, they do really well with that because they're quite good at squatting. Whereas our, our Tongans, they're really good at our height work and they're super good at citrus and they're good with strength work, but they don't like the squatting work. There are some cultural nuances within family units. How much does that play a role in how you work out if someone's suitable? A lot of what we have to do is also attitude, Um, and that's kind of what we try and look for when we interview people in country, and that's why we actually like to go to each country and talk to the workers. We want to make sure that they can succeed when they come here. Uh, We find a lot of our islanders and Timorese may never have cooked a meal before, haven't used a washing machine before. We have to teach them how to use a microwave. Things along those sorts of lines that we're happy to teach and we do, but we've also got to make sure that they've got that right attitude to be able to cope with being away from home. Uh, As a specific example, the first-born son in Timor is basically becomes the head of the family if anything happens to the parents at home. Timor culture is that most people are buried within 48 hours. So if someone passes away, we have to get our workers home very, very quickly and sometimes it's just not possible. On on the flip side of that, they're the most responsible within their family because it's up to them to support the family back in Timor. So they want to be here to earn as much money so that they can support the rest of their family at home. Timor is very much a, a less developed country. How is this benefiting its economy, pulling all these workers out of the country, which is a a labour force for Timor? Uh, There's currently about 1.3 million people in Timor and officially there are 100,000 people employed. Um, They're very keen to expand uh, schemes like the Palm Scheme. I know they've just developed a program going to Japan. There's also about 3,000 or 4,000 workers that go to South Korea each year and they're about to start with sending workers to uh, Brunei as well. Australia's not the only place where they do send workers. We would like to think Australia's probably one of the most regulated places where they send workers, where we know the workers are going to get looked after. Um, So the Timor government is really helpful 
shortfall in doing that. And we know that the Australian government does support that as well. Um, they give funding through to Timor to support um, more expansions. One of the things that the Timor government's done very recently is um, increase the number of what we call country liaison officers or labour attaches in Australia, which means there's more people from the Timorese government looking after the workers here in Australia to make sure that they are looked after whilst they're here. The onus is on the employers, there's no doubt about it, but you know, the government also likes to make sure that the employers are doing the right thing as well. We visit generally every year. Uh, we make the effort to go actually out to the districts. So we were there in September this year and we went out to the district Lautem. Lautem sits right on the eastern tip of Timor. It's one of the furthest districts to get to. One of the workers built a house for his father. He was then in the process of building a second house behind that for himself and his family. He'd already built a house in another town. Another girl, Mafina, had built a house for her family and she'd um, bought an electric pump for their well, uh, which was 14 foot deep, and they had a huge big vegetable garden out the back. So we've seen the houses built, we've seen the children educated. One of the, the oddities about Timor is they're allowed to go to university, but they can't graduate until they pay their bill at the end. So we've had three people go home in January to graduate. They've now got enough money to pay their university bill so they can now actually get that piece of paper to say that they've completed their studies. Look, we're fine if they don't come back. They've, they've done their time, they've earned their money. You know, that's the whole idea of the program is they gain skills here in Australia and, and benefits them, but then they take those benefits back to Timor and increase their own knowledge over there as well. Melissa Denning is the Pacific Workforce Manager with the Australian Pacific Labor Alliance. In a tick, we'll delve into the world of water divining, an unorthodox method of finding water. On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania, you're with Larissa Smith. Coming up to 12 to 1 on the Country Hour. Well, Morbana farmer Matthew Gunningham started dairying in Tassie about 20 years ago and at one point jointly owned and managed seven farms and more than 4,000 cows. But a few years ago, he had something of a change of heart, which has now led to something he never saw coming, and that's event planning. So, we ha- so I suppose... We have to run a, f- a profitable business. That's that's absolutely the the key. Um, but I wouldn't say that you know making a profit is our reason for for being uh, any more than, for instance, uh, yeah, a human's um, reason to be in existence is to pump blood around its body. It has to pump. You have to pump blood around your body to be alive. But that's not the reason you're alive, is it? So it's it's the you know. So the profit allows us to move our business forwards and to do things that you know that that we think are important um so um you know certainly a profitable business that we enjoy and that we feel good about um you know we spend an awful lot of time at work um so we have to feel that our work is uh, meaningful to us and, and and important to us and that we enjoy both the work and the people that we're involved with you know, on a day-to-day basis um, so I suppose, you know, enjoying the work, enjoying working with the animals, enjoying the environment that we live in, all of that is is you know, absolutely key. Um, a step in that journey that uh, actually led to something that you're, we'll get into in a, in a second, but was something that happened in about 2016, 2017 with some caterpillars. What was the great caterpillar event, Matthew? Well, yes, we had, you'd almost call them a, a plague of, of army worms of, of caterpillars um, and were really decimating our pastures and so took the c- conventional advice to to spray the pastures and I suppose at the time we were surprised at what a short withhold period the spray had very convenient I suppose the, in the label recommendation but we also were concerned just that the at the the ability to put cows back onto the, the pasture again within just a, a couple of days, and whilst that's, as I said, that's not, that was the recommendation that we were given at the time, we just thought it made us think. I wonder if that's exactly the right thing to be doing. At that point, we'd just been talking to a group um, on the mainland that were looking to buy organic milk, and being quite low input, low cost farmers anyway, we wondered whether or not we could 
go down the road of converting our production to organic production without having to make a wholesale change to our farming operation. And so that really started a chain of events where we started to look very hard at whether or not it made economic sense to do to, to do that, to go down the road of converting to organic, because it's a, it's a big commitment. It's a three-year uh, conversion period. Um, and we were concerned as to how would we would manage animal health and, you know, without necessarily a, 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 the ready um, access to some of the, you know, products that we were that we were currently using. And so we spent an awful lot of time on researching that, visiting other farmers. We went to the mainland and visited uh, organic farmers there and thought very hard about whether or not it was the right thing for us to do before we finally committed to to beginning the, the conversion process. Now that, with a lot of stops along the way, has led you down maybe another surprising route, um, the event planning route, Matthew, did... Tell me about that. Did you ever expect to become an event planner? No, I definitely don't see myself as an event planner. Um, so, yeah, we, we have decided to, to, to run a field day on the 14th and 15th of February. And it's certainly based around sustain, sustainable farming, but it's very squarely aimed at everyone in the farming community, um, livestock farmers and crop farmers conventional farmers uh, uh, right the way through to people who are you know involved in organic production uh, very very much aimed at uh, trying to see if we can bring a group of really uh, um, interesting people that have got expertise in in uh, you know areas such as soils plant species um, animal health um, right the way through to renewable energy and even you know people's health and well-being too in order to have a day where we can you know really get together and see if we can learn and and you know perhaps look at some of the things the opportunities that are that are out ahead of us and how we can take advantage of them and also some of the challenges and how we can meet them you know as well as we as well as we possibly can because we think there's a, a huge amount to learn that's would it be fair to say that's the overall theme is learning it's not really aimed at a specific group it's well farmers i guess the agriculture community but it's about farming smarter in our modern modern climate uh, absolutely 100 percent. yeah we you know we we know that the only constant in life is change and so therefore you know we have to be constantly upskilling and challenging our perspectives and looking at you know looking for opportunities for us for ourselves to improve to improve our businesses um and to you know to be well positioned to to take advantage of opportunities and to tackle challenges you know effectively and so in order to do that we have to keep our ears and eyes open and be very very open to to learning all, all the time Morbana dairy farmer Matthew Gunningham, who changed his style of farming a few years ago and has now decided to organise a small festival that's all about learning and changing. The Grassroots Festival will run over two days, next Wednesday and Thursday at Monchamana. Just put Grassroots Festival Tasmania into a search engine for more information. We've got a text in from George on 0438 922936 uh, in relation to uh, overseas workers picking fruit in Tasmania. Uh, George says, so we pinch developing countries, nurses, doctors, construction workers, now farm workers, and we'll wonder why in a few years our neighbour countries remain underdeveloped. He says, surely these labour schemes are madness when, for example, we have high unemployment, high youth unemployment and the reducing literacy and numeracy ranking in education across our own students. How about state and federal governments bite the bullet and fix internally our own labour issues? Thanks for sending that message in, George. Hey, we'll be catching up with uh, Joel Reinberger on Afternoons shortly. But before that, uh, droughts are inevitable in Australia and in dry times, people have to look below the surface to find water using methods more unorthodox than others. Lucy Cooper filed this story. Water divining is an age-old practice that many people swear by despite a lack of scientific explanation. Even Stephen McAndrew, who divines, 
doesn't know how it works. Just doesn't make sense to me, but it seems to work. And yeah, very strange. <laughs> Don't know. But I've always been able to do it. And a lot of people say they can't do it. I disbelieve it. I reckon everyone can do it. They just don't know what they're seeing. He divines on his hobby farm in Rollingstone, a small town in North Queensland. Walk around with these rods and they start doing funny things, um, whether they will either cross or part. Now, back in WA, they always crossed for me, but funny enough, here, they swing that way. So I mark the ground and <laughs> see if I can, looking at a stream or a like a basin of water but seems to be streams here but the science behind it got no idea it's intriguing it's way back in the 1500s that we know of one of the earlier accounts of using divining as a method to find water and it's rarely changed since then metal rods and or a forked stick continues to be used those who practice divining wait for sensation or movement from the rods well i i actually get a feeling before they move like a tingling feeling and then one will start before the other generally and then I try and stop them to be honest because that's probably my doubt coming in going is that me doing it and I can't hold them I, if I really grip it it'll keep them straight but if you're wanting to find water and divining isn't your vibe there are other options there's lots of information available through government websites that can help uh, figure out um, the types of aquifers that you might have at your property, uh, how deep groundwater might be and what types of yields you might get. For a hydrogeologist, um, after we've done, you know, these background searches to get an idea of what aquifers might be there, uh, we would typically use geophysics. So we'd employ a, a geophysicist. With more than 20 years of experience in the hydrogeology industry, Dr. Louisa Rochford has never considered water divining. I guess as a scientist, you, you deal more with the physical world. Um, whereas, I don't know, my understanding of divining is it's more about intuition um, and energy and those types of things. She too struggles to explain the practice. You know, it's almost sort of, you know, that, um, you know, like Reiki or a practice like that, you know, energy and intuition. Um, yeah, those sorts of elements, which is, you know, really quite different from science in a lot of ways. Science really looks at, you know, physical aspects and, you know, physical things that, um, you know, provide evidence of something. But as the rising cost of living puts pressure on farmers, picking up two metal rods to find a resource as precious as water remains an attractive option. I think there's a lot of electronic um gadgets out now that can um, send signals down and they give a reading and I haven't seen them, I've seen them on TV and stuff but never looked into that so I always trusted the old bent bit of steel. There you go Stephen McAndrew, hobby farmer and water diviner from North Queensland ending that story from Lucy Cooper